0: All right, you're about to listen to episode six of part one of the podcast series on Socrates. If you haven't listened to the first five, go ahead and do so. If you want to jump right in asymmetrically, that's no problem either. So I welcome you as you join me as we enter the fray. In 431 BC, the Spartans marched from their home in the Peloponnese north to meet the Athenians in battle. Despite what I have said about these guys in past podcasts, there is no doubt the Spartans are a most formidable fighting force. The Spartan culture was a strange one, even for Greece. Their entire society was built around a small group of citizens whose sole purpose was to engage in war. So who grew their food? Who took care of their livestock and did just about everything else to keep the Spartan society running? You probably guessed the answer already, slaves. Slaves were responsible for keeping Sparta on track. In one account of Spartan life I came across, there was at times up to 15 to 20 slaves per Spartan citizen. That's a lot of slaves. And the Spartans weren't necessarily nice guys on top of it all. There was no buying your way out of servitude in Sparta and it is for certain that the treatment of slaves at the hands of the Spartans was severe. Life was stressful and miserable in Sparta, mostly due to the apartheid-like state they lived in. It is almost like they were training for war all the time simply to keep their slaves in check. It's hard to find a more opposite culture than Athens. Everything Sparta held dear was disdained by the Athenians, and all that mattered to them was equally detested by the Spartans. They were natural enemies, one extremely progressive and the other incredibly conservative. It is interesting to read the Spartan account of Athenians, or at least a Spartan talk about Athenians. In Plato's Laws, Thucydides tells a story of when an Athenian and a Spartan were exchanging words. The Athenian had voiced a common refrain among Greek city-states, quote, The Spartans are only obedient for lack of opportunity to transgress. As for your laws, the Athenian continues, no city outside Sparta has any use for them, and when any of you are outside of Sparta yourselves, you do not observe them, but neither do you observe those of the ordinary Greeks, Unquote. As a retort, the Spartan has an interesting response. Now remember, the Greeks don't use sarcasm very much, and the Spartans never did. They would consider it bad form. They prided themselves on their brevity. No time for word games a famous example of their laconic style, which is named after them. The Spartans also went by the name Lacedaemonians. When right before the hostilities started between Athens and Sparta, Athens sent an official message to Sparta, giving them one last chance to stop acting, well, so damn Spartan. And if they didn't start towing the line, Athens would have to pay them a visit and teach them a lesson. The response from the Spartans is classic. It consisted of one word. If was all that they replied, by official messenger, of course. Anyway, back to the other quote that I was about to read. This response from the Spartans is a bit longer, but what is more striking than its length is that there is a very good chance that this is meant literally by the Spartan. And like a bad guy in a movie that states that humanity's ability to trust and to love is our biggest weakness, the Spartan goes on to say, When an Athenian is good, He is very, very good, for Athenians are the only people who are good by nature, truly and genuinely good, without compulsion, by some happy dispensation of providence, Like that's a bad thing? There have been few better boogeymen in history than the Spartans. And as a rule, if you ever happen to come across one in real life, it's best that you run the other way. And that's exactly what Pericles did in the first year of the Peloponnesian War. Now, this war had a very inevitable feel to it. The groups involved were so different that conflict was going to happen sooner than later. There is lots of blame to throw around, but in the end, it's hard to escape the fact that Athens brought what was about to happen on themselves. They had ridden the wave of freedom to preeminence and decided that the only way to keep the party going was to make everyone dance to their tune. However great freedom was, it was not going to be forced on any Greek city-state. In many ways, the foreign policy strategy of Pericles was a simple one. When we invade your country, it is for your own good, as your population will reap the benefits of being our friends. We treat our friends really well. In fact, we are the best, most best-treating-friend city-state you will know that can ever exist. Trust us, for we are Democrats. Oh, what was that? You don't want to hang out with the cool kids? Okay, that's fine. Just sit tight until we send our army and our navy out to make sure that you have to start considering eating auntie before she turns, because if you ain't our friend, then you have to be our enemy. And here in Athens, we treat our friends great, and altogether now, our enemies worse. That pesky little revenge morality has seeped its way into official state policy. Now, this is not a conscious choice. It is an inherited trait that evolved in humans over a million years. It provided the small hunter-gatherer groups that make up most of our history security from being taken advantage of by a rival group. It is very hard to overcome this type of hardwired, intuitive, unconscious behavior. How hard? We'll consider the current situation in the United States and many other countries around the world who are dealing with a crisis of cooperation. Listen to the rhetoric of leaders like Trump. It's a zero-sum game for them. If you get something, they have to get something in return, or they lose. If you're a friend of the administrations, then you are treated very well. If you're an enemy of the administrations, then you are treated very poorly. It's not too harsh to say that there has been a moral regression going on. Now, one could argue that this is how process works. One step forward, one step back, two steps forward, etc. And that's likely true. It doesn't make it any easier to be living through a time when we are taking a step back. And I'm trying hard not to put a value judgment on this process, though terms like step back and regression seem to belie that. But they are accurate if I contend that those terms are chronological in nature. The revenge, eye for an eye type morality was the first and longest held morality system we humans have had. It makes sense that a large portion of humanity would still, to this day, have that installed as their daily moral compass. Now, when people like Socrates or Jesus try and introduce new types of morality based on logic and compassion, then they have built on an existing system and progressed into a newer one. I guess it is up to debate which is bad and which is good, but the fact remains that they are both in existence today, and this is causing some real confrontations and calamity in our political and cultural lives. It's doing the same thing back in the ancient world. That eye for an eye mentality will truly leave Athens blind. And I find it telling that when you consider that Athens had built their democracy on a foundation of financial fair play, I mean, they even called it fair play before rebranding it democracy, that their foundation was not strong enough to support their dreams of a true democratic state. This was due to the weakness of their cultural morality, at least that's how I see it. The gods and goddesses of Olympus had been removed. Not that they were much help when it came to what we would consider modern human morality, but they were gone. Pericles and his ilk filled that void left by the legends with man, all by himself. Man being the measure of all things. And we can take that man's measure, and in this case ourselves take it, and we do find it lacking. What Athens needed was a strong morality system to work with their financial reforms. This is an understandable oversight as who knew a society needed a well-formed set of ethics and morals to follow in order for the micro, how people deal with other people, and the macro, how a state treats other nations, I mean, because they are connected. Now, as it turned out, they had the father of moral philosophy right there in their myths, but only a few paid him any heed while he was alive. Most considered him a weird, ugly man that walked the streets in rags, arguing and pestering people. What Athens needed most was Socrates. They just didn't want to listen. As the prospect of war becomes a reality, Pericles was faced with a choice. Fight the Spartans in open battle or do something else. He was aware that as willing and able as the Athenian infantry was to scrap with their hated rivals, it was just too risky. The Spartans were that good. On a good day, Athens could maybe hold their own against their nasty neighbors to the south. By why risk it? That's exactly how Pericles convinced the population of Athens to leave all their homes and most of their belongings and retreat into the city proper behind its high, strong walls. Coupled with their superior navy and defensible ports, the citizens of Athens could expect to stay supplied and, as long as the wall held, safe from the Spartans. So let them come. Let their physical dominance break against a void, rendering ineffective and costly who was guarding the Spartan homes as they were spending the season marching around in circles 150 miles away. Surely the Spartans could last no more than one or two years financially, spending their money-making days chasing shadows while the population of Athens was snug as a bug in a rug behind stout walls. And that's just what they did. The Spartans marched up Greece into the attic to square off against the Athenians. The Spartans stayed all summer laying waste to the countryside, destroying the orchards and olive groves, but there was no one to fight. Athens was busy going about the business of the day. It was a pretty audacious plan from Pericles, considering that the measuring stick for most humanity was how tough you are. The Athenians had utilized a different approach to fighting the Spartans. Ignore them. When the weather turned, so did the Spartans, for home. No battle was fought the first year of the Peloponnesian War. But it was not without casualties all Athenians did not make it inside the walls. And after the Spartans left, the Athenians gathered their dead and proceeded to hold a mass funeral to honor the sacrifice of the Athenians, who gave all for their beloved city. Socrates certainly attended this funeral. It is very likely that most of Athens was in attendance. All the famous names of the city were present. Alcibades, Protagoras, Sophocles, Thucydides, Hippocrates, And they all heard the funeral speech that was given by the chief magistrate of Athens, Pericles. Now this is one of the all-time great speeches. Now it survives today thanks in most part to Thucydides. Pericles and Thucydides were close friends and had a vested stake in the present course of action concerning the Spartans. It is pretty rare to get a speech like this in its entirety from this time period. A big reason we got it is that the speech is pretty short. Short things are easier to pass down, right? It's not Gettysburg Address short, but in coming in just about 2,000 words, it is a remarkably concise address. Now, the other reason it probably survived is that it's so damn good. It is one of those true human accomplishments. Stuff like Euclid's proof of infinite primes, Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, Einstein and Relativity, and for me, Pericles' funeral speech. It is not important that one understands the ins and outs of any of these great achievements, but it is important to experience as many of them as possible. To that end, I'm going to take advantage of the podcast format and present to you the entire funeral speech of Pericles. Now, there are key themes and concepts that will be in both a review of what we've covered to date and a roadmap for what we'll be covering in part two of this series. Now, remember, Socrates was at this speech. After this speech was given, There was a remarkable intensification of his, our alpha humans, push to understand how best to live one's life. I would go as far as to say as the speech definitely inspired Socrates. But again, him being him, not in necessarily the way that most people think inspiration behaves. But we'll get to that. In fact, in this particular speech, there are many interesting angles to pay attention to when you're listening to it. I'm going to give you a couple of them. Number one, this is not a transcription of an actual speech. This was a historian's attempt to recreate a speech. Thucydides was the author of this and is believed that it is the last thing that he wrote before he died. Now, he dies some 40 or so years after the speech was given. So in a lot of ways, this works in our advantage. Thucydides was notoriously fastidious with details. His works can be very dry, unlike his contemporary Herodotus, who writes stuff that sounds like an adventure novel. He had also heard many, many speeches delivered by Pericles and in fact probably wrote some of them. The time gap between the events in the speech and the writing of the speech afforded Thucydides the opportunity to reflect on the promise of Pericles and the reality of what actually happened in the preceding four decades. Now number two, there might have been Romans there. Now this this one is pure conjecture on my part. There are some facts, for instance, 12 years before the speech, there was a delegation of Romans who suffering under tyrants and Kings wanted to check out how the Athenians were doing with their little social experiment. So who's to say they weren't some Romans in attendance the day of the funeral. I'm saying that there was, and they returned home and began the process of kicking out the tyrants and establishing the Roman Republic. Now a guy can dream, right? Number three. Most of what we've covered up to this point is remarked upon in the speech. The pride of Athens takes in herself. The differences between Athens and the rest of the city-states. How women of Athens are treated. Pericles' disdain for religion. How motivated everyone was by financial matters. The list goes on. It is remarkable how in 2,000 words you can encapsulate so much. Four, when the term our fathers comes up, for instance, in a quote like the laws of our fathers... It is not meant as some throwaway phrase about tradition and legacy. It is meant literally because the laws that they are following were created by people like Pericles and Thucydides' fathers. Number five, what is true happiness and where does it derive from? On an earlier podcast, we quoted Thucydides saying that happiness was freedom and in particular freedom to serve one's city-state. Pericles will have his own take on what true happiness is it's not too far off from his buddies, but what is important is that Socrates will be inspired to find out what the answer to the question of what true happiness really is, and how is it obtained. Number six: Socrates will not be for this war, and he seems to sour on military engagement altogether. That is not very uncommon for someone who has actually fought in war. It's easy to lose one's taste for it. But for Socrates, I think he started to seriously question the overriding moral and ethical stance of his beloved beauty. Athens. This speech gives strong support behind the revenge eye-for-an-eye morality that pervades the ancient world. And seven, this is an important one for part two, is the focus on discussion or argument. For instance, on discussing plans, having a vigorous discussion, using intuition, arguments, and reason to come up with the best course of action. Now, this is going to play a large part in part two of the series when we dig into the philosophy of Socrates, because his main tool. For getting to the truth, was using an argumentative style. It's an important facet here that Pericles' speech touches on. So, this speech was given after the first very successful Ignore campaign against the Spartans. Now, remember, I mentioned this wasn't a verbatim transcription of the speech, but there was a speech given by Pericles, and there's a good chance that most of the stuff that's in there is factual simply because of the guy recording it for history. At the time this speech was given, even though they were giving a funeral speech, Athenian confidence was still at an all-time high. Even if they were itching for a fight, having a plan that kept most of Athens alive and prospering, all the while embarrassing and bankrupting the revived Spartans, most Athenians would buy that for a dollar. The Athenian Empire could beat the best armies and navies in the world toe-to-toe, and it could even bring one to its knees by simply refusing to acknowledge him. Was there nothing this amazing city-state could not do? So with that, we're going to start with an introduction from Thucydides and then let him take it away and introduce Pericles. So without any further ado, one of the greatest speeches ever recorded for history, Pericles' funeral speech. Quote, In the same winter, following the laws of their fathers, the Athenians held the first public funeral for those who had fallen in the war. The ceremony is as follows. The bones of the dead are exposed on a covered platform for three days, during which one may place his personal offerings at their side. On the third day they are laid in ten coffins of cypress wood, one for each tribe, every man's bones in the coffin of his tribe. These are put on carriages and driven to the grave, one empty bed covered with a winding sheet also borne for the missing bodies who were not recovered for burning. All who so desire, whether citizen or stranger, may join in the procession, and the womanfolk of the dead are at the graveside, wailing for them. The internment took place in the state burial ground, which is situated in the most beautiful suburb in the city. All Athenians who have died in war lie buried there, except those who fell at Marathon. Their valor was judged so conspicuous that the funeral was held on the field of battle. When the coffins have been laid in the earth, some speaker elected by the city for his wisdom and public estimation delivers an appropriate eulogy. After this, the gathering disperses. This is the customary ceremony, and it is adhered to throughout the war whenever occasion arose. It was at the funeral of this first group of fallen that Pericles, the son of Xanthippus, was elected to speak. When the moment came, He stepped forward from the graveside onto a high platform made for the occasion so that his voice might carry as far as possible over the crowd and spoke as follows Most of those who have stood in this place before me have commended the institution of this closing address. It is good, they have felt, that solemn words should be spoken over our fallen soldiers. I do not share this feeling. Acts deserve acts not words in their honor, and to me the burial of the state's charges, such as you see before you, would have appeared sufficient. Our sense of the deserts of a number of our fellow citizens should not depend upon the felicity of one man's speech. Moreover, it is very hard for a speaker to be appropriate when many of his hearers will scarcely believe that he is truthful. For those who have known and loved the dead may think his words scant justice to the memories they would hear honored, while those who do not know will occasionally, from jealousy, suspect me of overstatement when they hear of any feat beyond their own powers. For it is only human for men not to bear praise of others beyond the point at which they still feel they can rival their exploits. Transgress that boundary and they are jealous and distrustful. But since the wisdom of our ancestors enacted this law, I too must submit and try to suit as best I can the wishes and feelings of every member of this gathering. My first words shall be for our ancestors, for it is both just to them and seemly that on occasions such as this our tribute of memory should be paid to them. for Dwelling always in this country, generation after generation. In unchanging and unbroken succession, they have handed it down to us, free by their exertions. So they are worthy of our praises, and still more, so are our fathers. For they enlarged their ancestral patrimony by the empire which we held today, and delivered it, not without labor, into the hands of our own generation. While it is that we ourselves, those of us now who are in middle life, who consolidated our power Throughout the great part of the empire and secured the city's complete independence both in war and peace. Of the battles which we and our fathers fought, whether in the winning of our power abroad or in bravely withstanding the warfare of barbarian or Greek at home, I do not wish to say more. They are too familiar to you all. I wish rather to set forth the spirit in which we faced them and the constitution and manners with which we rose to greatness and to pass from them to the dead. For I think not unfitting that these things should be called to mind at today's solemnity, and expedient too that the whole gathering of citizens and strangers should listen to them. For our government is not copied from those of our neighbors. We are an example to them rather than they to us. Our constitution is called a democracy because it is in the hands of not the few, but of the many. But our laws secure equal justice for all in their private disputes, and our public opinion welcomes and honors talent in every branch of achievement, not for any sectional reason, but on grounds of excellence alone. As we give free play to all in our public life, so we carry the same spirit into our daily relations with one another. We have no black looks or angry words for our neighbor, if he enjoys himself in his own way, and we abstain from the little acts of cheerlessness which though they leave no mark, yet cause annoyance to whoso notes them. Open and friendly in our private intercourse, in our public acts we keep strictly within the control of law. We acknowledge the restraint of reverence. We are obedient to whomsoever set in authority and to the laws, more especially to those which offer protection to the oppressed, and those unwritten ordinances whose transgression brings admitted shame. Yet ours is no workaday city alone. No other provides so many recreations for the spirit, contests and sacrifices all the year round, and beauty in our public buildings to cheer the heart and delight the eye day by day. Moreover, the city is so large and powerful that all the wealth in the world flows to her, so that our own attic products seem no more homelike to us than the fruit of the labors of other nations. Our military training, too, is different from our opponents. The gates of our city are flung open to the world. We practice no unjust deportations, nor do we prevent our visitors from observing or discovering what our enemy might usually apply to his own purposes. For our trust is not in the devices of material equipment, but in our own good spirits for battle. So, too, with education. They toil from early boyhood in a laborious pursuit for courage while we, free to live and wander as we please, march out nonetheless to face the self-same dangers. Here is proof of my words. When the Spartans advance into our country, they do not come alone, but with all their allies. But when we invade our neighbors, we have little difficulty, as a rule, even on foreign soil, in defeating men who are fighting for their own homes. Moreover, no enemy has ever met us at full strength. For we have our navy to attend to and our soldiers are sent on service to many scattered possessions, but if they chance to encounter some portion of our forces and defeat a few of us, they boast that they have driven back our whole army, or if they are defeated, the victors were in full strength. Indeed, if we choose to face danger with an easy mind rather than after a rigorous training, and to trust rather in natural manliness than in the state-made courage, the advantage lies with us for we are spared all the weariness of practicing for future hardships. And when we find ourselves amongst them, we are as brave as our plodding rivals. Here, as elsewhere, the city sets an example which is deserving of admiration. We are lovers of beauty without extravagance, and lovers of wisdom without unmanliness. Wealth for us is not a mere material for vainglory, but an opportunity for achievement. And poverty we think it no disgrace to acknowledge, but a real degradation to make no effort to overcome. Our citizens attend to both public and private duties and do not allow absorption in their own private affairs to interfere with their knowledge of the city. We differ from other states in regarding the man who holds aloof of public life not as quiet, but as useless. We decide or debate carefully and in person all matters of policy, holding not that words and deeds go ill together, But acts are foredoomed to failure when undertaken undiscussed. For we are noted for being at once most adventurous in action and most reflective beforehand. Other men are bold in ignorance while reflection will stop their onset. But the bravest are surely those who have the clearest vision of what is before them, glory and danger alike, and yet notwithstanding go out and meet it. In doing good, too we are the exact opposite of mankind. We secure our friends not by accepting favors, but by doing them. And we are naturally more firm in our attachments, for we are anxious as creditors to cement by kind offices our relations towards our friends. If they do not respond with the same warmth, it is because they feel their services will not be given spontaneously, but only as the repayment of a debt. We are alone among mankind in doing men benefits, not on calculations of self-interest, but in the fearless confidence of freedom. In a word, I claim that our city as a whole is an education to Greece and that her members yield to none, man by man, for independence of spirit, many-sidedness of attainment, and complete self-reliance in limbs and brain. This is no phrase but actual fact, that the supremacy which our manners have won us itself bears testimony no other city of the present day goes out to her ordeal better better than men ever dreamed no other is so powerful that the invader feels no bitterness when he suffers at her hands and her subjects no shame at the indignity of their dependence great indeed are the symbols and witnesses of our supremacy at which posterity as all mankind today will be astonished we need no homer or other man of words to praise us, for such give pleasure for a moment, but the truth will put to shame their imaginings of our deeds. For our pioneers have forced a way into every sea and every land, establishing among all mankind, in punishment or beneficence, eternal memories and memorials of their sediment. Such then is the city for whom, lest they should lose her, the men who we celebrate died a soldier's death and it is but natural that all of us who survive them should wish to spend ourselves in her service. That, indeed, is why I have spent many words upon the city. I wish to show that we have more at stake than men who have no such inheritance, and to support my praise of the dead, making clear to you what they have done. For I have chanted the glories of the city, it was these men, and their like, who set hand to array her. With them, As with few among Greeks, words cannot magnify the deeds that they have done. Such an end as we have here seems indeed to show us what a good life is. From its first signs of power to its final consummation. For even where life's previous records showed faults and failures, it was just to weigh the last brave hour of devotion against them all. They wiped out evil with good and did the city more service as soldiers than they did her harm in private life. There no hearts grow faint because they loved riches more than honor. None shirked the issue in the poor man's dreams of wealth. All of these they put aside to strike a blow for the city. Counting the quest to avenge her honor as the most glorious of all ventures, and leaving hope, the uncertain goddess, to send what she would, they faced for as they draw near him in strength of their own manlihood. And when the shock of battle came, they chose rather to suffer the uttermost than to win life by weakness so their memory has escaped the reproaches of men's lips. But they bore instead their bodies the marks of men's hands, and in the moment of time, at the climax of their lives, were wrapped away from a world filled from their dying eyes, not with terror, but with glory. Such were the men who lie here, and such the city that inspired them. We survivors may pray to be spared their bitter hour, but must disdain to meet the foe with a spirit less triumphant. Let us draw strength not merely from the twice-told arguments, how fair and noble a thing it is to show courage in battle, but from a busy spectacle of our great city's life as we have it before us day to day, falling in love with her as we see her, and remembering that this greatness she owes to men with fighters daring, the wise men's understanding of his duty and the good man's self-discipline in its performance, to men who, if they failed in any ordeal, disdained to deprive the city of their services sacrificed their lives as the best offerings on her behalf. So they gave their bodies to the commonwealth and received, each for his own memory, praise that will never die, and with it the grandest of all sepulchres, not in, in which their mortal bones are laid, but a home in the minds of men, when their glories remain fresh to stir to speech or action on the occasion that comes by. For the whole earth is a sepulchre of famous men, and the story is not graven only on stone over their native earth, but lives on far away, without visible symbol, woven into the stuff of other men's lives. For you know it remains to rival what they have done, and knowing the secret of happiness to be freedom, and the secret to freedom a brave heart, not idly to stand aside from the enemy's onset. For it is not the poor and the luckless as having no hope of prosperity, who have most cause to reckon death as little loss, but those for whom fortune may yet keep reversal in store, and who would feel the change most trouble befell them. Moreover, weakly to decline, the trial is more painful to a man of spirit than death coming sudden and unperceived in an hour of strength and enthusiasm. Therefore I do not mourn with the parents of the deer who are with us. I will rather comfort them, for they know they have been born into a world of manifold chances, and that he is to be accounted happy to whom the best lot falls, the best sorrow, such as yours today, or the best death, such as fell these, for whom life and happiness are cut in the self-same measure. I know that it is not easy to give you comfort. I know how often the joy of others will have reminders of what was once your own, and how men feel sorrow, not for the loss of what they have never tasted, but when something that has grown dear to them has been snatched away but you must keep a brave heart in the hope of other children those who are still of age to bear them for the newcomers will help you to forget the gap in your own circle and will help the city to fill up the ranks of its workers and soldiers for no man is fit to give fair and honest advice and counsel if he is not like his fellows a family at stake in the hour of the city's danger to you who are past the age of vigor i would say count the long years of happiness so much again to set off against the brief space that yet remains. And let your burden be lightened by the glory of the dead. For the love of honor alone is not styled by age, and it is by honor, not, as some say, by gold, that the helpless end of life is cheered. I turn to those amongst you who are the children or brothers of the fallen, for whom I foresee a mighty contest with the memory of the dead. Their praise is in all the men's mouths, and hardly even for the supremest heroism will you be judged to have achieved, not the same, but little less than they. For the living have the jealousy of rivals to contend with, but the dead are honored with unchallenged admiration. If I must speak a word to those who are now in widowhood on the powers and duties of women, I will cast my advice into one brief sentence. Great will be your glory if you do not lower the nature that is within you. Hers is greatest of all whose praise or blame is least brooded on the lips of men. I have spoken such words as I had to say, according to the law prescribed and the graveside offerings to the dead have been duly made. Henceforward, the city will take charge of their children until manhood, such as the crown and benefit she holds out to the dead and their kin for the trials they have undergone for her. For when the prize is highest, there too are the best citizens to contend for it. And now when you have finished your lamentation, let each of you depart.